Welcome. We're glad you're here with us this morning. We're going to begin with our congregational memory verses. Let me pull them up here. Oh, you can be you at the mic over there. Yeah, you're good. All right. All right, we have three verses. First one's Matthew 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Second one is Mark 12, 28 through 31. Of all the commandments, which is most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than them, than these. And then Acts 2.42, they, they devoted themselves to the disciples, teaching to, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Very good. Thank you, Gary. How are we doing? We're all surviving things. So there's this uh, thing called the coronavirus that's spreading around. And uh, um, we're glad you're here. It means you're the tough ones, I guess. I don't know. Um, we want to be sensitive, though, uh, to uh, things going on with this. So if uh, you notice that people are more willing to give an elbow bump than uh, a handshake or whatever, that's okay. Uh, I think that the distance that spreads easily is like not more than six feet. So you are outside of my spit zone as your preacher, which is good. And uh, we just want to be as safe as we can, and if we have to get more creative with this, we're willing to do it. And uh, I just want you to know, though, if you want a hug or a handshake from me, you always get one. So if you want to brave it for me, I'll brave it with you. We are continuing in our series in Acts, and uh, I'm just going to do a quick recap uh, from last week. I did a comparison, and it wasn't really a fair comparison. I said, what is the Eugene Church of Christ, what do we have compared with the Antioch Church? And when I said that the Antioch Church had Saul and Barnabas and you get Calvin and friends, some of you laughed. <laughs> and that's okay. That's okay. Because what the, my point with all of this is, we have the same Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is able to take us in our smallness, in our brokenness, in our, willfulness, in our willfulness, and He's able to push us in the right direction and direct us gently or as harshly as He needs to. And we have everything we need to become a, uh, the church that God desires us to be a staging point for the mission of God in the Eugene-Springfield area. So our demographics are different, our challenges are different, but it's the same Holy Spirit. And then I, another point I made is I invited us, don't be satisfied with too little, meaning that too little from yourself, too little from your church, too little from your God. Nominal Christianity does not satisfy. If you're just going through the motions, that's not going to satisfy. 
So I asked, what is your next, spec, uh, your next step that you need to take? And we're not expecting spiritual heroics, uh, leaping tall buildings in a single bound spiritually. But I asked, what is your next thing? What's the next small step that you need to take in trust and faith? What does it look like to do something rather than nothing? What is that? Spend some time praying to the Lord about that. And then I talked about the idea of satisfaction versus surrender. We all want satisfaction. But, you know, there's some truth to some of the old songs. I can't get no, 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 satisfaction. I don't know if that's appropriate for me to sing from the pulpit or not. Probably not. But there's some truth there. If you aim for satisfaction, you're not going to be satisfied. You're not. If you make the Lord your first, your one and only, your priority, satisfaction is not going to be a problem for you because He gives special joy and peace to those hearts and those lives that are fully set on Him. So in today's text, Luke moves us from this staging point of mission in the Antioch church back to catch us up on what's going on in Jerusalem, what's been taking place at this time. And we have a new character introduced to us. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So now we find a new development. We have political power that is being mobilized against the church. It's not just religious leaders. It is the full boot of the state at the throat of the Christian church. And so this marks a shift. It's not just zealous Jews anymore. This is state-sanctioned violence and persecution using government resources, including the military strength of Rome. Herod Agrippa is the one who's referred to here. He is a grandson of Herod the Great. I'm going to throw a timeline up there. If this is helpful, if not, it's just confusing. You can look down or close your eyes or whatever you need to do. But you see Herod Agrippa, who's in power there um, in Judea from 41 to 44. And about 44 is the time that James the Apostle is martyred. Notice that Herod Agrippa doesn't go a whole lot longer than that. But this kind of gives you a rough outline of events. These things are pretty loose in there, give or take a year or two. Um, uh, and we're starting to get into Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas. And you can see some other kind of key events as they happen throughout the New Testament because the events of Acts actually span a pretty wide range of years. So Agrippa, this grandson of Herod the Great, who was a tyrant, you know, there's, there's something about his being in power too. He is playing with people's lives like it's some kind of game. He curries favor with Jewish people by killing a Christian leader. James is killed with the sword. He's either run through or beheaded with the sword. Um, 
And I think this speaks to the character of this particular person in power, the presumption, the pride, the arrogance of the rich and powerful. Sometimes it's astounding, even to me, and I probably am in a lot of these groups. And Herod Agrippa is case in point to this. He grew up in Rome. He was educated with Caesars. And so when he is in his jurisdiction in in Judea and the surrounding area, he thinks that he is supreme. And so uh, it's like, um, I don't know, he's got these minions around him, and he figures out, well, there's this other subsect of this minion who are called the Christians, and oh, you know what? When I killed that one, they really got excited about it. I guess I'll get another one and do this. And that's, that's his kind of regard for human life. Uh, I think, and I won't, make, I won't dwell on this too long, but I think as rich Christians uh, of privilege in the age that we live in, I think it's important for us to constantly re-examine our assumptions, assumptions that we largely inherit from our culture around us. And uh, there are certain places we get tripped up, Uh, and I'll just share what I think are a couple of them. This isn't exhaustive, of course. Uh, There's presumptions that the educated make toward the unschooled at times. And this is a question about who has knowledge and who has something important that they can share and that we can learn. Um, I've done my fair share of schooling. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I've, you know, three years in a master's program, four years of doctoral work, and there's a lot of very educated, ignorant people (laughs) out in the world. And if you presume that I cannot learn from such and such, you close yourself off to, or from so and so, you close yourself off to a lot of wonderful and amazing teachers. And so with all of these things, you know what fixes any of these things? Humility. Humility and love. The rich with the poor. And that's an issue of making value judgments. Who has something that can uh, benefit me? Or who has something to offer? Who is the one who's deserving? Who is the one who has true worth? Agrippa thought of himself as set apart and different from these other people. He is also a case in point for the powerful with the marginalized. Who are the most marginalized in our society? We need to ask ourselves that question soberly. Who are the alien, the stranger, the foreigner, who we presume against? They don't have anything that, to offer or give. They're not safe. How do strangers come in and lose their strangeness in a place like the church? The self-righteous with other people. I'm all this. And this is kind of that mindset of the, the Pharisee with the tax collector. Thank you, Lord, that I'm just, I've got it together, and I'm not like that other guy, that tax collector. We know, we know about him, their kind, and the tax collector who's just beating his chest before the Lord. And who does God accept? So I just wanted to invite some thought on that as well. Who has something to teach me? 
What do I deserve? Who has value? Who is close to God? Who is in charge? Those are good questions to ask. Herod, he thinks he's the one in charge, doesn't he? He's making value judgments. He's playing with lives. And he's about to discover just how wrong he is. After arresting him, he put him, Peter, in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. It means he's going to make a show of this and uh, use this to curry more favor with his Jewish minions that were under his feet. This is during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, this is the time of year that Jesus himself was arrested and executed. And I think it might be possible that Agrippa knew of Peter's previous escape from prison uh, with John uh, that he got out because 16 professional soldiers to guard one prisoner who's already behind bars and a locked door, it's overkill. It's massive overkill. So probably what's happening here, if, uh, if the, the way the Roman military worked, if you had, this was like the top tier kind of guarding of a prisoner that could take place. If you got 16 professional soldiers guarding one, one guy, this is a power move, this is a political move. And what typically they would do is they would break up, each squad would take a shift. And so you would be on guard duty for three hours, and then you would have nine hours to rest. And this, was ensure, this would ensure that the soldiers who were on duty, they would always be fresh, even if your shift fell in the late watches of the night or the early morning. So they're constantly refreshing, and they're constantly keeping people together with them. And then uh, the squad that was on duty one soldier would be chained to his left arm and one would be chained to his right arm. And Peter was there in the middle, chained to two professional soldiers with the other two serving as sentries guarding doors. Um, so really what Agrippa and the Roman military, they're making presumptions as well, what they thought they had set up was a 0% possibility of any kind of escape taking place. But they failed, they failed to take into account two critical parts of the equation. You know what that is? A church that prays and a God who acts. Wasn't even on their radar screen. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Earnestly. The same word earnestly was the same word used to describe Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says this in Luke 22, Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling on the ground. Some of you may have 
heard about this or seen this or experienced this, a time of prayer that is so intense that you break out into a sweat. Uh, It's a real thing that happens. I've witnessed it twice and experienced it once. Uh, One was uh, in Tanzania at an exorcism that I was at, and uh, we were making pastoral visits rounds, and we're in this village, and this young girl, she's she's possessed, and she's writhing on the floor, and the uh, church leader I was with in Swahili, he's casting out this demon in Jesus' name. And when he says it, I can feel the power of the Holy Spirit. And he said it with such authority, and instantly he breaks into this sweat. So whether you want to agree with that or not, I'm just, I'm not, that's not my point. My point is there's such intensity in what's taking place in their prayer that it's an amazing thing that's happening. I think with our prayer lives and what we do in our prayers together, I think we're just scratching at the surface. I think there's a lot for us yet to discover and explore and experience, even beyond our expectations of what we think that is possible or what can happen. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city, and it opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. You see, the Lord, He can take what Peter thought was a vision or a dream, and He can turn it into a reality. Peter thought he was dreaming. He was just kind of following along with this vision. This is interesting. Wow, what a vivid dream. Huh, isn't this amazing what's going on? I wonder what's going to happen next. He's just following along. He's just doing what he's told. And Peter, he, we know that he had learned the hard way how to obey and how to follow and how to step out in faith. He doesn't stop and say, wait, what's happening here? This isn't possible. No, he just kind of goes with it. He just goes with the flow here. And just as an interesting aside, um, you know, we see throughout the book of Acts, the agents of heaven are busy at work. The mentions of the Holy Spirit at work, the Lord, Jesus Himself, it's just everywhere. And there are all of these mentions of angels in Acts as well. Angels giving instructions, angels helping, breaking people out of jail, 
We're about to read about an angel uh, delivering judgment. It's just kind of an interesting aside. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Praying. So Peter, he comes to his full senses, and he heads for the places that he knows where he can find other disciples. A couple interesting things about this verse 12. Apparently, believers in Jerusalem still had personal property. They had been sharing it with each other, but uh, now we find that uh, this mother of John Mark uh, is using this large house that they have as a meeting place to bless the church, and it's big enough for many people to be gathered there. And because John Mark's father is not mentioned, it's likely that his mother was a widow, Um, but the family had enough means that they had this sizable house that they are blessing the church to use, and they even have a servant girl who kind of helps out with things around there. And don't miss this. The church has been together praying throughout the night. It's, it's just beginning. It's, it's the early morning when Peter starts knocking at the door. They had been together praying throughout the night. When was the last time you were so concerned about something that you spent the entire night in prayer? Have you ever had this experience? We're scratching the surface. I think we're being invited into more. And it's a sweet thing. Peter knocked at the outer entrance. And a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door! Peter's at the door. So, Luke is a comedy writer as well, apparently. Rhoda... This servant girl, her name means Rosebud, she's so excited that she forgets to actually let Peter in. She just has to go share this good news. She's so overjoyed. The comedy continues. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they they said, well, this must be his angel, some kind of representation of him. But Peter kept on knocking. Peter kept on knocking. So the comedy deepens because now the answer to the church's prayers is literally standing at the door. And Peter is like, hello, I can hear you guys in there. Would you please open this? Knock, 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 knock. He keeps on banging on the door. See what's happened here? The real comedy is this. God has answered the church's prayer, and the church can't even believe it. 
You know what? We are like that sometimes too. We pray these big, audacious prayers. And we don't really expect God to do anything with them because they seem so impossible to us or so outside our our realm of personal experiences. And when God does answer the impossible and the impossible comes to pass, we're like, wait, what? What's just happening? That can't be what's. How, how did. That's how good our God is. When they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, the brother, and the brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. So we can see this is the first time James, the brother of Jesus, is, is mentioned as someone who's prominent in the, in the Jerusalem church. And we're not told the other places that Peter goes. Maybe he's on a different mission. Maybe he's hiding out. You know, he's being looked for by uh, the government. But we, we can see that the Jerusalem church, it's meeting in multiple locations. There's house churches all spread out in different places. And he instructs uh, the, this, this fellowship at John Mark's house to get the word to James and the brothers and other believers. Well, in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him. He cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Ordered that they be executed. Just like Herod didn't value the life of James, the son of Zebedee, but kills him and, and, oh, this made the minions happy. So now in his annoyance, he doesn't value the life of 16 soldiers. He just has them killed. And then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there for a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him, having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So he leaves Judea. He's back on the coast again and a more uh, a seat of power in Caesarea. And Blastus is kind of his inside man. He's got this quarrel with these other groups of people. They get a foot in the door, and now he's getting to pronounce more judgment and say things again. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not a man. And he's just there soaking it in. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms and died. Eaten by worms and died. Herod Agrippa's pride, his presumption, his arrogance, even to the point of pretending to be a god, uh, brings him to this place of immediate and severe judgment. 
An angel strikes him with worms. Worms eat him up. He dies. The end. Gruesome, horrible kind of death portrayed there. This is political power. This is the state, the government, against the church to squelch the church, to kill its leaders, to destroy them. But there's judgment taking place. God is the one, obviously, who gets the last word anytime. Don't forget, what is your life? You're, you're like a mist. You're like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And even when the might of Rome is now leveraged against the church. You see this again and again and again. The Word of God continued to increase and to spread. This has been going on for 2,000 years. The world throwing its very worst at the church. Now, state-sponsored persecution by the Roman military. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. When the world is against the church, when the culture has turned against us, when they're indifferent or apathetic or even active in persecution against us, and none of that matters, when internal threats arise from our own brokenness and our own pride, That doesn't matter. When the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms are aligned against us and want to see our destruction, that doesn't matter. Because it is the will of the Lord that always prospers. And a church that is in line with the purposes and plans of God, that church is not stoppable. It's not stoppable. You know, I don't, I don't know how many days I get. I don't know the struggles that I'll face tomorrow. I don't know about the uncertainty in the economy, all of these things. I don't know the evil that will be perpetrated against my family. I don't know the mistakes my children will make that I won't be able to fix. I don't know any of that. I know that we face financial hardships. I know that we have people who are struggling in their marriages. I know that there are people dealing with depression and hurt. Some of you have anger that you don't know what to do with. As we align ourselves with the mission of God, He's going to take care of all of those things to the point where none of that matters. And when you live that kind of life, all those things become very small. And Jesus Christ becomes very large. And He's beautiful. And in the end, it's only His words that are going to make a difference and are going to matter. So a couple lessons I want us to consider 
from Acts chapter 12. One is about presumption. Who thinks they're in charge of everything taking place? Herod did, Herod Agrippa. Who is the one who's really in charge? And the church cries out to the one that they know, the only one who has the power to make a difference. And look what happens when a church earnestly prays. They get answers to prayers that they didn't even expect to happen. It seems so impossible. They're answered prayer knocking at the door and they can't even believe it. And then the third point, it doesn't matter what is stacked against us. It is the will of the Lord that will prevail. And I get to proclaim that truth to you today. I don't know my tomorrows, but in this moment, I get to honor God and say it is His will that will prevail. And none of the, ma- none of the rest of it matters. So, uh, Jason, you can come up. I hope that some of this text and some of this message today, that it strikes somewhere there. If you need the prayers of this church, if you want to put the, the Lord on in baptism, if there's some way that we can encourage you, you always have that opportunity here. And uh, let us know and come see me. I'll be standing right down here in front. Uh, come see me and tell me about this as we stand and sing together.